So today's Bible's Bible reading will be taken from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, and verses 16 to 23. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom a hundred satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom the satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all, the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counsellors and the governors agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had, with, where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Uh, verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth, the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No other versions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at the break of the day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. This is the word of the Lord. So what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object? Uh, the irresistible force is Daniel, and the immovable object is the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be altered. 
And what happens is one of the best-known stories of the Bible, of course. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den. It's not really a story for children. Uh, it's probably one of the best-known stories in the Bible. It's often illustrated in a children's Bible story book. But it's not really a story for children, is it? An old man in his 80s, thrown to the lions. Pretty gruesome. An old man, at the end of his days, cruelly victimized by the system, but marvelously vindicated by his God. And those are the two sections of this chapter. Those are the two points that I've got for us tonight. God's servant victimized, verses 1 to 17, the first half of the chapter. God's servant vindicated, verses 18 to 28. So first of all, let's consider the victimization, if you like, of a man of God. Look what we're told there in verse 3 about, about Daniel. Daniel so distinguished himself, it says, amongst the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now that, that's quite something, isn't it? You know what public life can do to people. We've seen some tragic examples of that very recently, haven't we? Some very high-profile politicians, including a deputy prime minister who just ruined their, their families. And we know what public life can do uh, to people. And yet here is a man who, who's lived for more than 50 years in the murky world of power politics. And he's squeaky clean. Too clean to impeach. And it's not for one of trying. Look at verse 4. Uh, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charge against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. That's quite a testament, isn't it? He, he served in three different administrations. And each time he, he's risen to the top. First under Nebuchadnezzar, then Belshazzar, and now Darius the Mede. And there's not a spot on him. Not even the investigative journalists can find anything on him. Not even the, sh the shock jocks can find anything on him. Either in his public life or in his private life. And so they set a trap for him. Look at verse 5. They say to themselves, when We'll never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They're going to target him because of his faith, because of his God. But Paul reminds us in the New Testament, doesn't he, that all who want to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And Daniel wants to live a godly life. He's not just a good man, he's a godly man. Good men get the Order of Australia. <laughs> they become Father of the Year. They, uh, they're praised. Godly men get crucified, don't they? Daniel was a godly man. Jesus said, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. If, if no one's got a bad word for you, then, um, then maybe, maybe it's because you're keeping your head down too much. Maybe it's because you're not 
as Christian as you should be. Maybe it's because you're not daring to be as different as you ought to be. Maybe you're just too nice. <laughs> I often say you know, people, often, when people always, you know, when they, one of the, they say you're a bunch of hypocrites. You, I, often, I often say to people, you know, Christians aren't nice people. <laughs> Christians are nasty people. It's, it's sinners that Christ came to call, not the righteous, not good people. Maybe you're just a little bit too nice, a little bit too respectable, a little bit too polite. You can't really be a Christian, especially in our society today, without being persecuted in some way or another. Now, I know we're not going through serious persecution. But Paul says, all who would live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And, and it's not hard to see why this was happening for Daniel. Yeah, there's all sorts of reasons why these people are giving him a hard time. Uh, professional jealousy. Daniel was better at his job than anyone else. Uh, they couldn't fault him. Uh, there were, of course, younger, more ambitious men waiting to take his place. Uh, remember, Daniel has come out of retirement probably in his 80s at this time. Uh, he's been promoted over their heads and of course they're jealous. You know what it is to work in an environment like that, no, no doubt. Maybe you're one of those angry young Turks who's after somebody else's job, I don't know. But that's what it was like. Uh, it's the real world. This isn't a children's storybook, this is the real world. Uh, Daniel was a Jew. Now, why should all these foreigners come into our country and take all the top jobs? That's what they say there in verse 13. They play the race card, don't they? They say to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty. Order the decree that you, you put in writing. And they're, they're watching their backs too, because if squeaky clean Daniel gets the top job, there's almost certain to be a, a crackdown on corruption. Of course, that's why Darius wants him in that top job, because he is a man he can trust. He is a man who's not out to line his own pockets or feather his own nest. He's a man who really does seek the prosperity of the city. That was, that was Jeremiah's charge to the exiles as they were carried off into exile, that they should seek the prosperity of the city to which they were being carried. And Daniel is just a model to us of how to live in Babylon. And that's where we live. We live in Babylon. And if you're, one of, if you're the kind of guy that Daniel was in your workplace, then you're going to get targeted too. And I think that there's, there's a challenge there for us straight away tonight. Um, you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You are, remember he said, you're the salt of the earth. And, and salt isn't uh, just something for, to sprinkle on your food to bring out the flavour in the Bible. Salt isn't some, uh, just a condiment that you've got on the table there as part of the decorations on your table. Salt in, in the Bible in, and in the ancient world was the equivalent of a refrigerator. You rubbed salt into the meat to stop it from going off. And that's what Jesus is saying about us. That's his charge to us as his followers, his disciples. You are the salt. You are the salt of the earth. 
And what that means, of course, is that God's people need to be, sorry for the cliche, but we need to be in the world without being of the world. But we do need to be in the world. The salt needs to be rubbed into the meat. And, and just like Daniel, instead of withdrawing, as sometimes we're tempted to do, and, and separating ourselves from the world, we need to get into the world. Sometimes we we feel that you know we've got to take the Benedict option. We, sometimes we feel that uh, you know, our kids need to go to Christian schools because you know we're afraid of what might. It's a risky business being a Christian. You're the salt, and the salt has to be rubbed into the meat to stop it from going off. Christians need to go to places that are falling apart. In practical terms, that means you need to think of your choice of career. It's great to see such a young bunch of people here uh, tonight. And you're probably at a stage, many of you are at a stage when you're, you're, you're doing uni courses or you're, you're thinking about you know, what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Have you ever stopped to ask, what does God want me to do? You've only got one life. And it'll soon be passed, as the, the, the old song says. And only what's done for Christ will last. Have you thought about that? What has God wanted me to do? What career should I choose where I can make the most difference as a Christian? I can tell you, I'm, my life's gone just like that. I'm, I'm 70 next year. I can't believe that. I still feel as if I'm 20. <laughs> where have those years gone? It'll be the same for you. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And, and it, it, this has got something to say to us, not only about what, kind of what we're going to do with the rest of our lives, but it also, and if you've just come in, I'm just about to retire. What am I going to do with my retirement? What are you going to do in your retirement? People live longer and longer. We are, we're healthy uh, at an older age these days, and there's so much available time we've now got. What, what are we going to do with our time? Where are we going to live? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered whether you're living in the right place? I mean, why do all the Christians abandon the inner cities and move out to suburbia? There's a Bible belt around every major city. Is that a good thing? Well, it's understandable. It's understandable. After all, who doesn't, who doesn't want to live in a nice, quiet neighborhood where, where everything is neat and tidy and everyone is ever so polite to one another, just like in the Truman Show? But do you really want to live in the Truman Show? Do you really think that's where Jesus wants you to live? Have you ever thought about that? Anything but a quiet life, but Jesus isn't calling us to a quiet life. Look, look at verse 6. Look what happens to Daniel. They set a trap. They, they gang up on him. They, they go as a group to the king and they say, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree, put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And, and Darius fell for it. Verse 9, he, he, he signs the decree, he puts it in writing. 
He's blinded by their flattery. He's trapped by his own ego. He doesn't even realize that he's being set up. And so the trap is set. It's very clever. I mean, why hire an assassin when you can use the system to do your dirty work for you? Daniel? Oh, yeah, he's a good bloke. I've got nothing against Daniel. He just fell foul of the system. That's what happened to Jesus, of course, at one level, humanly speaking, isn't it? Remember what they said to Pilate when they handed Jesus over to be crucified? We have a law, and by that law, he ought to die. And Pilate didn't want to execute him. But what could he do? His, his hands were, were tied. We have a law, they said. It wasn't God's law. Pilate knows that. His conscience is telling him that. His wife's dreams are telling him that. But what can he do? We have a law. He can't go against the system. And, and so Darius, too, is caught in the same trap. He doesn't want to throw Daniel into the lion's den. Did you notice that in the passage? According to verse 14, he was greatly distressed. He's heartbroken. He's got a great respect for Daniel. And when he realizes what he's done, how he's fallen into their trap, he's determined to find some kind of loophole in the law. He stays up all night trying to find a way out of this, it says. He's determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. But his hands are tied. The law of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. So here's Daniel. How does Daniel cope with this? What does Daniel do about this? Well, look at verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, what did he do? He did what he always did. He went back to his house, went back to his home, went upstairs to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. That's very significant. Os Guinness, um, somewhere in one of his books, says it's as if he is talking about this episode. It says it's as if he it's as if he's swallowed a gyroscope, or, or a, a sat nav, or a GPS, or something. It's as if he had some kind of built-in compass that seemed to influence him. He, he's flying in the face of the cultural winds all around him. In, in, a, in a pluralistic age, Daniel stubbornly holds to his belief in the one true and living God of the Bible. And he's totally unashamed about it, and he doesn't care who knows about it. He opens his windows towards Jerusalem for all to see. And in defiance of totalitarian political correctness, in defiance of the law of the Medes and the Persians, three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before, it says. You've got to draw the line somewhere, you see. I mean, this is so relevant, I think, to where we are today. Our society tolerates everything except us. They pride themselves in being a tolerant society, but they'll tolerate everyone except Bible-believing Christians. That's who we are. Why is Daniel thrown to the lions? It's not because he's a good man. It's because he's God's man. 
His windows, it's not just because he opens his windows and prays in public, his windows are open towards Jerusalem. We'll pick up on that tomorrow morning, that's, that's very significant. He's praying for the deliverance of the Jews. He's praying for God to turn their captivity. It's very significant. Remember what? Remember that conversation that Jesus had in, in the Gospels with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And, and Jesus convicts her in, in a, such a... It's such a model of personal evangelism, isn't it? He sort of, in a very loving and kind way, he speaks the hard word to her, doesn't he? He puts his finger on the problem in her life. He says, go and fetch your husband. She says, I haven't got a husband. He says, I know, you've, had, you've, you've, you've been living with... You, the man you're living with now isn't your husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband, is he? And what does she do? Well, she changes the subject. As people do. You know, she said, what denomination do you belong to? You know, we, we, we Samaritans, we worship on this mountain, and you Jews, you worship on that mountain. And let's have a talk about religion. That's far less confronting than talking about sin, isn't it? Remember what Jesus said? He doesn't say what you expect him to say. He doesn't say, oh yes, well look, there are lots of different ways to God, there are different paths, you know, the Samaritans go up this path and the Jews go up this path, but we all meet at the top. That's, not, that's what people would want him to say, but that's not what he says. Do you remember what he says? He says, salvation is of the Jews. If people are going to be saved, the Saviour is going to come out of the Jewish nation. God has a plan to save the world, to save all the nations of this world. And it's not through religion. Salvation, the Saviour of the world, will come out of the Jewish nation. It will be the Jewish Messiah. So, you see, if the Jews are wiped out in Babylon, we wouldn't be sitting here tonight. If the Jews were wiped out in Babylon, there would be no salvation because salvation is of the Jews. So, so do you see what's happening here in this chapter? This is, this is spiritual warfare. You see, Daniel is not just a good man who's caught up in some terrible political treachery. He's God's man. He's, he's one of the key figures in God's plan to save the world. And if Satan can remove him, then God's people will disappear. And God's plan will come to nothing. Do you see what I'm saying? See, the lions in the den are not the only lions in this story, are they? There's another lion who's prowling around, seeking to devour Daniel, Satan. See, it's not just flesh and blood that Daniel's up against. Or you or I, for that matter. It's not just office politics. It's not just petty jealousies, the spite of colleagues, the inflexibility of, of, of the system. Be, behind all of that, there's, there's another agenda. Satan's. So here's, here's God's servant. You and I are God's servants if we're God's people. Here is God's servant, victimized by, by the satraps, by the system, and by Satan. Now, now look what happens in the second half of the chapter. God's, God's servant is victimized. But in the second half of the chapter, God's servant is vindicated. Look at verse 22. God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions, it says. Verse 23. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him. 
because he trusted in his God. Remarkable miracle. Now, of course, um, not every story has a happy ending like that, as we know only too well. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer refers, you know, the great chapter of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer refers obliquely to this incident. He talks about those, in verse 33 of Hebrews chapter 11, those who through faith shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames. I mean, that's Daniel and, uh, and his buddies, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in, in the burning fiery furnace. But, but then he goes on in the very next verse in Hebrews chapter 11 to talk about others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. And, and as you know only too well, thousands of Christians were thrown to the lions in Nero's day. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, was thrown to the lions in AD 108 at the Colosseum in Rome. He said, I am, ground, I am God's grain to be ground between the teeth of wild beasts, so I may become a holy love for the Lord. See, if, if you risk your life for God, he won't always deliver you from the lions, but ultimately he will. You can go into all sorts of, you can go to Niger, like uh, the, the, our friends we were hearing from this morning into a 90% Muslim nation, into a, a very threatening environment. Bring your children up there because you can trust this sovereign God. He may not, he may not always deliver, but ultimately he will. How do we know? How can we be sure of that? Because of three things. Because, first of all, because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you were to go to the catacombs in Rome, you would see the story of Daniel in the lion's den, carved into the walls. It's one of the favorite stories of those early Christians. They, drove, they, they were driven underground by, by Nero's persecution, and they, take, they took great comfort from this story. And it's not hard to see why, is it? Because they saw it as a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. There's no way he's coming out of that alive, is there? And look what it says in verse 17. A big stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And then the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. That's the end of Daniel. I mean, what does that remind you of? They put a stone over his tomb and they sealed it, didn't they? But the grave couldn't hold him. Death couldn't keep him. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose, the victor from the dark domain. His servant Jesus, God vindicated his servant Jesus in the resurrection. See, no wonder those early Christians took such comfort from this Old Testament story because it's what enabled them to go literally into the lion's den in sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead. Just like Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, he says, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, I'd love to know the story behind that. Not sure what he meant by that. Is he speaking metaphorically? You know, were they beastly men that were sort of giving him a hard time? Or was he literally, did he literally go into the arena? 
Yeah, but he, he, he said, seems to be referring to something that had happened to him. He said, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Why take the risk? Why live dangerously if there's no resurrection? But he says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. You probably, I'm sure you've heard the story about John Payton, the great pioneer, uh, Presbyterian missionary, who went to uh, Vanuatu to the New Hebrides and uh, uh, you know the story if you've read his biographies uh, someone in his church tried to persuade him out of it so you, you know don't you that, uh, uh, that there are cannibals there if you go there they'll eat you and you remember what John Payton famously said he said Mr. So and so is one of the old elders of this church Mr. So and so you're an old man and one of these days you're going to be put in the ground and you will be eaten by worms <laughs> What difference does it make if we're eaten by worms or eaten by cannibals if we're doing the Lord's work? If, if, if we have this hope of the resurrection, if, if in Jesus we have the resurrection from the dead, do you see? We're looking for a, a better resurrection, like these persecuted saints in Hebrews chapter 11, like so many of our, our brothers and sisters around the world, we're looking for a, a better resurrection. Uh, Daniel came back from certain death, didn't he? He was a man in his 80s. Uh, it wouldn't be long before he had to go into the grave again. He came back from the dead to die again. But Jesus rose to die no more. We believe in a better resurrection, don't we? So we can take heart, because there is resurrection. It's not just that we'll survive, you know, there's disembodied spirits and survive death and flit around in clouds and things like that. No, there is a, a, a better resurrection. Just as Jesus came back from the dead, he is the first fruits. And all his people will follow. There's resurrection, but then secondly, there's retribution. Justice will be done. That comes out here as well, in, it doesn't it, in verse 24, do you see that? At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children and before they reached the floor of the den the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones that was common practice apparently grisly and cruel though it might be his accusers and their families were thrown to the lions and chewed to pieces before their bodies hit the ground which only goes to show that those lions were hungry and it shows something else as well, that evil has a kind of boomerang effect. It, it rebounds on you. And even when it doesn't, even when people seem to get away with murder, ultimately there is a day of reckoning. For all who've fought against the Lord and his anointed, there is a day of reckoning. And, and in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, God has served notice on the world that such a day of reckoning is coming. Remember what Paul said to the uh, the, the, the people on Mars Hill there in, in Athens, remember? He, 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 he tell, in Acts 17, he says that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed and he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Do you see what he's saying there? It, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. It's not the way we usually preach the gospel. But you see what? He's, he's not, the gospel doesn't invite you to judge Jesus. Perhaps you're here tonight, you're not yet a Christian. And you, you, you're wanting to check things out and you 
The gospel isn't inviting you to judge Jesus. The gospel is informing you that Jesus is going to judge you. And that is inevitable. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he has served notice that the day of reckoning will come when you will have to give an account to God. And the gospel is informing you, that not inviting you, but informing you that Jesus is going to judge you. And so it calls you to repentance. I'm not here to ask you to do Jesus a favour tonight and you know, make up your mind whether you want him or not. I'm here to tell you that if you leave it long enough, it's going to be too late. I'm here to tell you that God has raised this Jesus from the dead. People thought they got rid of him. They thought they'd thrown him onto the, you know, onto the scrap heap of history. We crucified him. Yeah, we don't have to worry about him anymore. But up from the grave he arose. They put a stone over his tomb. But up from the grave he arose. God vindicated him. And he, he's, he's, he served notice on the world by raising Jesus from the dead that one day, through this man, he's going to judge every one of us. There's resurrection for God's people. There's retribution for God's enemies. And there's something else here as well that's promised. Renovation. See, there's no doubt, of course, that, that what happened to Daniel in the lion's den was a miracle. But we need to understand what, what a miracle is. Miracles in the Bible are not a suspension of the natural order. They are restorations of the natural order. See, when Jesus heals the sick and raises the dead, he's prefiguring the world to come. And that's how we, are. it's not that we can do these things, you know, because Jesus did it, we should be doing it, that's what some churches teach. No, no, that's, that's to miss the whole point completely. When Jesus healed the sick and when he raised the dead and cast out demons, he's prefiguring the world to come. The kingdom of God has come near. And that's how we do understand Daniel in the lion's den. God is showing us what he wants his world to be like. Someday, through Jesus, the world will be, can I put it this way, restored to its original settings. And the lion will lie down with the lamb. And there will be nothing to hurt or to harm in all God's holy kingdom and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea that's the message of this chapter this world is broken and fallen it's not what it's meant to be a virus has got into the system and caused it to crash that virus is called sin it's, it's wrecking all the files it's destroying people's lives you and I are not what we were created to be Death has come into the world. Sickness has come into the world. Evil runs riot. But in Jesus, there's a future and a hope. In Jesus, we can return this world to its factory settings. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the beginning of the world to come. It's the beginning of the new creation. Remember what Paul says, if anyone is a Christ one, if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. The old's passed away. Just like Noah getting off the ark, remember after the flood? 
is a new creation, a new beginning, a fresh start. Uh, one of my favorite stories from church history is the story of uh, uh, one of the Protestant martyrs who was being led out to his death. Uh, it was a beautiful sunny day, just like today, actually, blue sky. And cruel times, he was going to be burnt alive at the stake, and he was led out, and uh, people were trying to convince him to recant and, and to publicly deny his faith. And uh, as they led him to the stake, and uh, he looked around at the crowd, and the sun was shining down, and people were saying to him, look, look why don't you, you know, all it takes is just a few words. And he looked around and he said, if God gives a world like this to his enemies, what kind of a world is he going to give to his friends? What kind of a world will he give to his friends? You see, the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. It's much, much more than that. It's much bigger than that. It is the restoration of all things. Remember what Peter says in, in Acts chapter 3 after the healing of the, the lame man of the temple you know, at, the, at the beautiful gate? Remember what he says? He says to the crowds, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Don't you want to be a part of that? See, being saved is not just getting a, like taking out an insurance policy against hell or something like that. It's not having your personal ticket to heaven. It's, it is the restoration of all things. It is a new heaven and a new earth. If God gives a world, a, a world like this to his enemies, what kind of a world is he going to give to his friends? Do you want to miss out on that? Darius got the message, didn't he? He published it abroad. Look at how the chapter ends, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, and this was the superpower of the, of the, of the, of the day, in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Darius got the message. Do you get it? Let's pray. Lord, we ask indeed that you would help us to understand just how big salvation really is. Help us to understand, Lord, that your plan of salvation is something that you have worked out throughout the centuries, that salvation is of the Jews, that those promises, those covenants that you made with your people, your ancient people, you have been faithful to your word and you have sent the Messiah into the world. And we thank you that through Christ and his death on the cross, Lord, you have reconciled all things to yourself. We thank you that now, because of that, we have a future and a hope of glory. And we pray indeed that uh, as we think about these things, that we will not be ashamed to testify to these things. Like Daniel, we pray that we might be circumspect in the way that we live amongst unbelievers, 
in Australia that we might be wise, choose our words wisely in, in a culture of totalitarian political correctness. But at the same time, Lord, we pray that we might be unmovable when it comes to the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. Help us to open our windows. Help us to draw the line in the sand. Help us to not be ashamed of our Lord Jesus, who you raised from the dead for our justification. Amen.